Dave is ultimately different that we don't require customers to open up a checking account the same day that they join. People don't get excited to open a checking account when they wake up in the morning, but they do wake up with deep financial pain points like overdraft. Big banks were charging up to a hundred bucks a day for access to as little as $5 of overdraft. But we found that customers were actually really in need of using overdraft to go buy things like everyday essentials. And they were willing to pay those absorbent fees in order to do so. So we came out with the country's first interest-free overdraft product where customers could connect an existing bank account, get approved within seconds to get a hundred bucks of overdraft protection to go buy those everyday essentials without the crazy fees. Hi everyone, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today where we talk about all things FinTech and in this episode I am joined by Jason Wilk, co-founder and CEO of Dave, a neobank that recently announced it's going to go public via a SPAC. So I'm very excited to dive into neobanks, the SPAC process, everything with you, Jason. This is going to be a good one. Good to see you, Julie. I think a lot of people that listen to this probably know what Dave is, but let's just do a, a brief background. We know what challenger banks are, but how is Dave different from some of the other ones that we might have talked about on here before as well? Yeah, and thanks for having me. So Dave is, is ultimately different that we don't require customers to open up a checking account the same day that they join. We found that people don't get excited to open a checking account when they wake up in the morning, but they do wake up with deep financial pain points like overdraft. And we looked around the ecosystem in 2016 when we were starting the business. We found that big banks were charging $34 and up to 100 bucks a day for access to as little as $5 of overdraft. And the neobanks that have been around for quite some time of names that we all know, their approach to overdraft was to not allow it at all. But we found that customers were actually really in need of using overdraft to go buy things like everyday essentials, gas, groceries, and they were willing to pay those absorbent fees in order to do so. Because if you're at the grocery store and need to feed your family or you need to get home or get to work and use and get gas, that's an, a critical issue you need to solve. And so we came out with the sort of country's first interest-free overdraft product where customers could connect an existing bank account, get approved within seconds to get a hundred bucks of overdraft protection to go buy those everyday essentials without the, without the crazy fees. We also paired that with a really unique insights tool that alerts customers about upcoming bills like a Netflix or a water and power bill to tell members how much they can safely spend in between paychecks. And that combination of really helping people with short-term financial health situations was a game changer for how we grew so quickly in such a crowded space when we launched the company. And now we have our own day banking product, which we rolled out in December 2020, fully to all customers. And we're not surprised that we saw a huge attach rate to that given we're now offering a, a bank account with no overdraft fees, no minimum balance fees, and helping the user out of the exact same situation as the reason they first joined us in the first place. And so about half of our members who utilize our extra cash service end up joining the bank. And that's just been a really unique way for us to build the business and for everything else new we think we can build in the future. Interesting. When did you start thinking of yourselves as a bank? Is it right at the beginning or is it when you started launching more of those broader products around it? So banking was always part of the roadmap. If we look at our investor deck back in 2016, that was always the North Star where we wanted to get to, but realized there's 14,000 different checking accounts in this country and trying to go to market with just another checking account was going to be, was going to be challenging. And so 
while we knew that was where we wanted to end up, we always wanted to start in a very different way, recognizing, again, that people aren't jumping to want to look at a new checking account, but they are looking to feed their family. Right. And now I'm assuming that a SPAC was not on your initial investor letter, like roadmap, whatever you want to call it. When did you start thinking about going public via a SPAC versus, you know, staying private for longer, doing a direct listing, doing a traditional IPO, getting acquired, all of the options that you have out there? Well, I, I will say when I first started the company, I never heard of a SPAC. That was a new concept <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, yeah, when the when the rise of that happened back uh, last year, we, we we certainly were were keeping a close eye. You know, our business is quite unique in that we've been profitable since 2018, and so we had a lot of flexibility with what we wanted to do next with the business. And for us, raising a, a large growth round didn't make a lot of sense, just given you know, we already were able to put capital to work efficiently. And so for us, we felt like just having public equity was going to be a really unique way for us to grow the business you know, organically and, and, and inorganically. And so looking at the wide array of opportunities we could we could go out with, a SPAC seemed like the best opportunity given our longstanding partner, Victory Park, who's been a, a debt investor in the, in the business for years. They already had a SPAC vehicle that was the perfect size. And then we were already in discussions with, with one of our favorite fintech investors with Tiger Global. And they said if we went down that route that, that they would anchor the pipe. And so it kind of made for a pretty easy decision versus going down a more complicated IPO or direct listing process. Ultimately for us, it's really about how the business performs once we're out. To me, the way you go out is, you know, it doesn't really mean that much as much as your first couple earnings calls do. Yeah. Now, there are some other benefits to doing a SPAC, like being able to talk more about like way farther in the future um, than what you are with a traditional IPO. It can happen a lot faster if you want it to than a traditional IPO. How much did factors like that weigh on you guys choosing this route versus other? And sort of like walk me through how how your day-to-day and like this whole process changes on your end as a founder and CEO versus if you were doing this with a traditional roadshow. So the two things we liked about the SPAC was one, well, there are several things, but one was the guaranteed amount of capital that's going to come into the business. We know that the pipe investment is is a guaranteed investment, even if there's 100% redemptions in the, in, in the SPAC vehicle, which we don't anticipate. Uh, the second was having the agreed upon price as well. With an IPO, there's still some uncertainty there as how the thing will ultimately get priced. And that happens at the very end versus in this process, the price was agreed upon before we even walk down the, the aisle with, with Victory Park. Um, and then the last one is certainly be able to talk about that future roadmap and, and projections as you know, educating, educating investors that, first of all, most investors have never even heard of overdraft fees. And so getting them up to speed on that and showing them how that's going to translate into a much broader roadmap uh, has been a helpful tool for us to be able to talk about and ultimately will help the, uh, the stock. The details that went out around the SPAC, since just like if someone were to file uh, an S1, you start getting more financial information about the company when someone files to go public via SPAC. Um, It looks like in 2020, you guys had just north of 120 million in revenue. You had 75 million in gross profit, which is around like a 60, 65% margin. And that the the average payback window for users is around nine months. How How has that changed over the years since you guys started in 2016? 
I mean, in 2016, we were still building the company. We officially launched April 2017, so it's just been a little over four years, which is a you know pretty incredibly fast run from launch to to actually going public. Now, I would say that the business had incredible product market fit from the same day that we actually launched. I think our cost to acquire customers early on was like a couple dollars. It was pretty astounding how much this product was was in in need of consumers, and we knew we were onto something pretty quickly after uh, after launching it now we still have an incredibly efficient cac to to ltv just given we have that very different starting point with the member of helping them first with insights and extra cash before then cross-selling into things like banking or side hustle uh from there so one thing that i've talked to you about before and i've uh you know gone back and forth with you a little bit on is the whole being able to tip for getting a loan thing where do you explain that process a little bit to someone on here that has not used that before um and we can dive a little bit deeper into that yeah so the, the tipping was a really interesting concept back when we launched it just given we're trying to be dave dave versus goliath and we're going up against these these legacy incumbents that are charging these huge fees and how can we put ourselves on the right side with the customer? And so this whole notion of being able to tip, something we learned from, from GoFundMe and some from other platforms in Asia that were utilizing tips in a pretty meaningful way. And so we thought, well, one, it's gonna help us align ourselves with the user, but two, it's gonna help us figure out if we ultimately charge for the product, what should we charge? Because the user is gonna tell us through their optional fee model. and. We loved it. I mean, that's just been a product that our, our, our customers love and that we feel great about given, one, how much it helps our, our members, and two, a significant amount of people don't actually even tip. And so we like the fact that people can take advantage of this product for free as ultimately we view the extra cash solution as a way to really build that early relationship with the member and then have that relationship to then cross-sell into multiple financial products at, at better pricing because we don't have that huge CAC up front. What are the, what's the average size of a loan that someone's getting from you guys through this model? And like, if I go to do that, what does it default to on the tip? So I, I think of like when I get something from Whole Foods on Amazon and it defaults to a $5 tip, like what does yours default to and how has that evolved over the, the time frame? So we've had both models, some where we, we recommend a, a suggested tip and, and one where we don't. We actually found that when we don't recommend a tip that more people actually do it, which is quite interesting. Um, but you know, again, we found that, that this has been a popular service. We also pair each percentage tip with uh, a meal pledge to Beating America, which has been a great partnership. So it gives our customers the chance to give back when they're in a time of need and they don't actually owe the tip until they can afford to pay us back, obviously. And so something they can feel good about once you pay us back, we're then, you know, going to kind of release the, the meal to Beating America as well, which has been a cool, a cool process. And what's the average size of the loan that someone's getting through you guys? So it's not it's not actually a loan. I mean, we call it sort of a non-recourse advance that customers can get because right. there's no there's no late fees, there's no credit check, uh, and and no interest, of course. But the average amount is around sixty to seventy dollars is what a member ultimately requests. As we found that members do like the fact that this is a smaller amount, just given it's not something that they're at risk of not being able to afford to pay back and truly gets them the things that they need because we're also coaching them on what they actually need the funds for given our insights tool is, is recommending things based on their spend spend behavior. And if, the, if they have an outstanding amount with you, are they allowed to request another advance or do they have to pay that one back in full before they're allowed to request something else? It's just one at a, one at a time, one, once per pay okay. period. 
That's what I thought, but I wasn't sure. On the, on the tipping front, before we move off of this, it's an area that you guys haven't done anything in, but I'm sure you've traded stocks and stuff before. Public recently announced that they're going to let people tip for their trades versus doing payment for order flow or making people pay a dollar, two dollars. Do you have any thoughts on just them doing that? I, I actually, I have not asked you about this yet, but just given that you have so much experience in tips and know some of the dynamics behind it, I'd love your thoughts just on a brokerage offering something like that. I haven't heard any stats on how that's going. I'd, I'd be really curious to see what's happening there. What's unique is that compared to overdraft, which you really can't access for free at a, at a legacy bank, it's $34, which is why we think customers feel compelled to tip. With products like Robinhood, where you can already get free trading, um, you know, I'd just be curious if people are willing to pay a fee on top of that, knowing that there are many no-fee alternatives. Right. No, I would love to see some data on that too. Sadly, they are not going public via a SPAC right now or public at all. So I can't see the data yet, but I will definitely yeah. be right. checking I, I that out. I hope it's going well. Though. I mean, we, we think tipping is a great way to monetize products, but yeah, if you get any stats, let me know. I will. I will. It looks like also in your filing that it, you have around 11.4 million unique users every single month. How did that change over the pandemic? I'm interested. Like I've seen a lot of other challenger banks announce you know lots of customer growth during that amount of time what did that look like pre-covid for you guys we still had a significant growth year in, in during covid i will say what's unique about it is that because of all the stimulus dollars that came in when, mem when members do get the stimulus their their need for overdraft actually goes down quite quite precipitously and so that was an interesting time for us given we saw the demand go down for that product and so we sort of leaned in more towards side hustle knowing that quite a few members were getting furloughed from their jobs. So we have this job board, which helps customers find new opportunities to put second sources of income back in their pocket. And we were promoting things like Uber, or Instacart, DoorDash. And I think we've actually submitted about 4 million job applications to those services so far since we launched it back in 2018. And that was, that was a lot, got a lot more popular during, during COVID for sure. On that front, you mentioned, I hadn't thought about this, that the demand for that cash advance had gone down. Have you seen that start to pick up again now that there isn't stimulus money flowing through, even though obviously like the jobs numbers are getting better and whatnot, but it's been what, a few months since any stimulus checks have gone out? Yeah, I would say things are not fully back to normal yet. I mean, it's interesting. I was just in, um, I was just in Montana for a trip and the amount of businesses that can't even open because people are still living off their stimulus and don't want to go back to work is uh, was was astounding to me. And so you sort of see that in the data that deposits at, at banks are sort of still at an all-time high, and it's been a, a unique position. It's not to say that there's still not a lot of people that, that need help with overdraft, but you know, with businesses shut down, still people not really getting back into into society fully yet, and, and with uh, a lot of places shut down, we found that uh, you know, demand's still not back to sort of where things were, were pre-COVID. Then for this product, since it's not technically a loan, you probably don't even need state lending licenses for this, right? Like it's still regulated and stuff, obviously, but you probably didn't have to go state by state to get approved and, and all that, That's right? That's right. Cool. Nice bonus on that front there, because I, I know that things like that take a long time. It's amazing how many different regulators and things fintechs have to go through, although Jamie Dimon seems to think that you guys don't have to go through stuff like that. So. <laughs> well, I mean, you could make it as a real loan product and just run it through through a bank a bank partner as well, which which would require which would cover the state license issue. But uh, yeah, you also could do the state 
state-by-state thing as well. Right. There was one thing that caught my eye in the filing. It said in May of last year, you got a note from the CFPB and you're working with them on um, an investigation. There wasn't too much color around it though. Is there, was that in regards to that cash advance product or was that something totally different? It's just asking for more information about, about each of our services. I mean, Dave has brought in a lot of innovation to the market not surprising that that people ask questions from time to time on on how we actually monetize and making sure that that they understand the model and so you know that that's as much as we can say about that but it's um you know been on, ongoing yeah i know that um like i mentioned before fintechs hear from regulators all the time just asking for more info and getting color on what's going on and stuff speaking of like what's going on over the next year or two, like as you guys go public and we start to hear from you more often, what sort of things should we expect to hear from Dave? Like, are you going to really lean into the products you have right now? Should we expect more product announcements? Where do you sort of see the future of your company going over the next couple of years? Well, what's unique about us is, again, we really do feel that we are a financial platform. And so as opposed to opening up a checking account to get to our services, you can join Dave with email, phone number, username and you have access to all of our features on an independent basis. And so our focus really is how do you become more of that daily financial hub for all things in a, in a customer's life? And so our, our, pro, our roadmap we're, we're quite excited about. We have a savings, independent savings product coming out that will be here this year. And there's many other features that we're, we're building that will make us more of that, that daily financial tool for members. From there, once we, once we build that real huge base up and have that continued trust with the members, then we think that there's a lot of other things that a non-standard customer is getting taken advantage of in the market. So we're, uh, you know, we're, we're excited about the future of the company. Where are most of your customers coming from these days? Is it other challenger banks? Is it big banks? Is it underbanked? What's really that um, you know, big customer acquisition channel for you? What were they using before? It's still the major banks that, that the customers are coming from, although we do have some nice penetration amongst our, our, our peer set in the, in the challenger banking space, given how members can utilize our products and features. Um, and then we find that word of mouth is our strongest channel for user acquisition, which we, we love to see. We have over a million app store reviews now, which is best in class amongst our peer set. And we still have a, a 4.8 star rating, which they all leads well to our, uh, you know, our, our acquisition strategy. Putting your company aside, I've started asking founders and other executives this question towards the end of the podcast. If there was one private company that you could invest in right now, which one would it be? That's a good question. Now, I think... There's a lot of them out there. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of them out there. You know, I, I think that this sort of middleware is going to be a really interesting business for, for a lot of the fintechs is the leading brands in, in, in neo-banking are, are not going to have to build everything in the ecosystem, right? I think that a good company to point out would be Drive Wealth is an interesting one to invest in, I would say. You know, if Dave wanted to get into investing, we haven't decided that yet, but if we wanted to, that's would be an easy middleware partner we could we could bring in, white label that product, make it look and feel like a Dave investing product, and now we're in market within six months without having to build that thing from scratch. I think that we'll see more of an explosion there of that service layer um, of these types of companies that can help us really become that daily financial hub without the significant upfront uh, amount of work. So I, I would say that was an example. Do you think it makes more sense for someone like you guys to use them or does it make more sense for a big bank or does it not really matter? Because I know that companies like Goldman Sachs are doing a lot of 
you know, banking as a service type things. And I'm kind of curious your thoughts on if it makes more sense for these challengers to start doing that, just given your tech stack, or if it makes as much sense for someone like a Goldman and JP Morgan, Bank of America, whoever to start integrating things like this. I think we'll see more adoption from the challengers that are, are more willing to try new things than the, than the larger banks that tend to move slower. And I can only imagine all the regulatory hurdles have to go through to start getting into new product categories. We can be a little bit more nimble and work with our sponsor bank to roll things like, like this out. And so I would say you know, higher propensity for the challengers to use it versus the, versus the incumbents. But I think eventually they will, they will catch on. Remind me, do we have an exact timeline of when you guys are supposed to officially spec? I know it's been announced and like people know which vehicle is, but there's like an official like day it starts happening as well. Yeah, so it's it should be around late September, October is the is the anticipated date. I mean, we we fortunately didn't have to deal with the warrant accounting issue that was going on, so we should be on that that three and a half four month average timeline from from merger agreement to to ultimate despec. Awesome. Well, if anyone listening wants to buy shares, they can watch this fall. Enjoy your August and the holiday and then come back in the fall ready to buy shares of Dave then. <laughs> That's right. And we do have the Dave ticker, which is going to be awesome. There you go. There you go. Easy to find then too. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. I'm glad we were able to make this work out. And anyone listening to the podcast, you can go check out Dave. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. And we will see you next time. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Julie.